0: Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I thought that was a great segue into some of the things I wanted to share today. Because a week ago, we, I was challenging you around the scripture in Joel chapter 1 verse 14. And it was a call I was calling our church here at Cornerstone for the next 2 weeks. And the call was in Joel 1:14, "Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord." And that was a call we issued just a week ago for our church. Uh, I'm actually, Lori and I are going to be heading out in, in, about, uh, in about three hours from now. We're going to be heading up to Huntsville. We're going up to a two, three-day conference up there. It's a convention. It's a ministry conference. And our conference up there, we're going to be gathering together with hundreds of other uh, leaders, pastors. And the focus is consecrate yourself. The focus is consecrate yourself. And I really, that stirred my heart because this text in Joel 1.14 starts off, says, consecrate a fast, consecrate a fast, get together and pray and fast and seek the Lord. Why? Why would we do that? Well, get desperate for what you need God to do. You know, I've discovered we put up with a lot of stuff that's not God, don't we? You don't have to say amen because I don't want to agree to that. We just put up with stuff that's not God. We put up with death in our life. We put up with despondency and lethargicness and passivity and and all that stuff that's just, it breeds hopelessness and despair and discouragement and depression and all those D words I don't like. (laughs) We just put up with it. We think, well, that's the way it is. It's what I've seen. It's what I got. I guess it's what I've got coming. But I want to suggest that's not God's plan. Now you can say amen. I suggest that's not God's plan. He's got some amazing things planned for us. I'm going to be talking about it. I shared it last week. I've been reading through Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and I realize he's got great plans for us. When he bought us with his son, and he has given us life, he didn't mean for you just to drag it through this life. He meant for you to have life and have it more what? Abundantly. Abundantly. I like that word, don't you? I like abundance of stuff. I like when I, you know, have food on my plate. I like an abundance amount of food. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like when, you know, whatever it is, God, God provides just lots. He's provided abundant life. And that we might know it and experience it and live it and walk it. And yet, we look around and there's a lot of the D words. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of lack of life, hopelessness. Many times there's, there's in this place, loved ones, dear loved ones, husbands, wives, sons, and daughters. We've been there, done it. Sons, daughters, husbands, wives, moms, dads, sisters, brothers that are lost. Maybe they're lost In their faith, maybe they're lost in relationship. Maybe they're lost in this life. And so we in this world, we offer drugs. We offer drugs of choice. And sometimes it's not just alcohol or drugs that you take to simply get you through another day. And I think that's very sad. I understand why we reach out to that, but there is a better answer to it. It's found in your hope of salvation and in Christ he redeems, sets free, and gives you life. He gives you life. My son's singing there as he began perspective. What is my perspective? What am I seeing right now in life? And I look around and I see what what's happening in so many of our children, and personally, that really bothers me. Does it bother you? I see what's happening. Many youth who's just, who are searching for friendships, and so they're being promiscuous in their relationships. And that only deepens their depression. That only deepens their problem when it does come time, when God does put a man or a woman in their path that is the right person. Now they've got a whole whack of problems they've got to work through. I get mad over that. I get mad over the indoctrination of our kids to be secularized and to turn away from the living God into other things that have no life or purpose. It makes me angry, and I want to be angry, not just to be angry. I don't, I'm not particularly an angry person. I want to be angry because that's a good anger. That's a righteous anger. There's a righteous anger that says, enough's enough. Enough's enough. I don't want to see our kids struggle the way they're doing. I don't want to see when they walk away from your home, my home, and they walk away from God at the same time. They go into college, university careers, and they don't turn back. I'm tired of it. And so am I just going to sit around? Am I going to simply preach the stuff that doesn't work? Or do I believe God is an everlasting God who changes lives, transforms us, reforms us, sets us on a different... And it's not a blissful path. It's a tough path. But when he is with me, then he's carrying the mother load in this path. Amen? He carries the big part. When I get in the yoke with him, I think I'm doing a lot, but I really am not doing a whole lot. He's doing the work for me. It's called his grace is sufficient for me. You can say amen to that one. And so we can preach this, church. I'm tired of it. And so here's the thing. Do I put up with it? Do you put up with it? Are you putting up with it? Or do you say enough's enough? And you might have said, hey, I've been there, done that. soon as I did that, it's like I got attacked with everything in this world. Well, good. Because now you are going against the tide. And you're making a difference. And you will be attacked. You will face trials. You will face difficulties. You can find that biblically to support it. But you are going the right direction. Because he who is in you, finish it. He who is in you is what? He's then he's in the world. So you've got greater power going against the tide than if you thought you were going with the tide on that wide road and you thought you were doing it yourself. God raised up in a remnant. So I, we called it last week, God, we consecrate a fast. I come back to this little text right here, John or Joel chapter 114. Consecrate a fast because this was happening in the story of Joel. Consecrate a fast. Call assembly. You can't do it alone. You say, well, I go into my secret closet and I pray. Good, keep doing it. But you've got to get someone to join you now. You got to get together and you got to hear each other pray. You got to pray for each other. You got to call on the Lord together. You got to hear each other's voice. Because when we do that, we encourage each other and we build each other up and we're stronger together. There's something about that, it's biblical. And so when we do, what happens is it's like, you ever seen a little tiny candle? And it can make a difference in a dark room, but you bring one more candle in. It's just that much more. And you just you keep bringing those in. I think you can even buy these flashlights. I think they call luminous or something like that. And, and there's, they used to have, I don't know if they still have them, they're like a million luminous. In other words, if it shot you in the eye, it'd burn out your retinas, you know? And there's just like, whoa, I can't see for the next five minutes. Why? Because it's the combination of many candles. That brings intensity. And when we get together, there's an intensity. There's an intensity on a Sunday morning that is not there on a Sunday afternoon when you're by yourself or there on a Saturday evening when you're by yourself. So we want and we believe that there needs to be a call, a consecrated call a sacred assembly, gathered together. And I've called the elders of this church. We had a number of the elders last night join. I called the staff of the church. All our staff were together last night. We came on Saturday night, and we called on the Lord. We basically are drawing a line in the sand, not against God, but against the enemy of our soul. And often it comes from here. We drew a line in the sand and said, "Enough's enough. We are praying. We are going against this. We ask God, show us. What's holding back the rains of heaven from being poured out? God wants to show us. He says, if you seek him with all your heart, he'll show you. So we're seeking. God, show us. Why, why are we not seeing the breakthrough in our community? Why are we not seeing the breakthrough in our lives? Why are we not seeing the breakthrough? God, there's some things blocking up the dam, damming up the things of the river of, of life. Show us what they are because we will stand against those things. According to your word, we will stand against those things. And so we're calling that. We call it, that resonates in your spirit. And you need to be a part of that. A part of something greater than us and a refusal to just put up with it. Just put up with it. Oh, well, I'll get back on track one day. Mm, it doesn't always pan out that. I've discovered when the Lord nudges me and I ignore it, I don't sense his nudge the same way the next time. Seems more distant, easier to resist. Every time I resist, it's easier to resist the next one. Next thing, I'm not going to church. and I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about people. Next thing, we're hit and miss. We're showing up when we, you know, we're just getting busy. We can't do this because we got this going on. We might have something else going on. Winter's coming on. I'm hearing this all the time. Oh, winter's coming on. I can't go anywhere. Well, you know, it's still pretty good out there right now. There's no snow outside. And yet, well, in winter, I can't do something. Well, that's down the road. What about right now? Can I do something now? You know, the devil I've discovered loves the word tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. He just loves the word tomorrow. Tomorrow. Another day. Another day. And then it's still another day and another day. You're saying, Pastor, you're not preaching. You're meddling. And possibly I am meddling. Because I'm consecrated fast. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. And we cry out to you, God. We put our faces flint towards him because he's the answer. He knows and holds the answer. He's not holding out. He's revealing himself. He delights to reveal himself. And so as I face and I pursue, God demonstrates himself to us. Praise God. Well, we started last week and we talked last week about... Areas where death has been in our lives, in our midst. And it comes to the place, it's just, I've had enough of having enough. And we call a sacred assembly. So join us again this Saturday night, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. Uh, and this week, we consecrate a fast, take some times, shut down screen time maybe this week. Take your screen time and open up God's word and begin to... Read some of God's Word. Go into the book of Ephesians. Go back into the book of John. Go back into the Gospels and read something of the Gospels of Jesus and what he was doing and what he was saying. And open your heart to what he's doing. Do it in the morning. Do it in the evening. Allow the days to be saturated. You know that old expression? I remember my youth pastor telling me, garbage in, garbage out. You know, If you let garbage into your life, that's all you got going on. So get that out. That's what fasting does. It stops that stuff so that I can just really hear what God is saying. Because the sounds of this world get really loud, and the sounds of his whispering spirit gets really hard to hear. And if it's only once a week or occasionally here and there, hit and miss, then we wonder why we don't see God at work. It's not his problem. It really isn't his problem. It's mine, because I have turned my back. And so, consecrate a fast, call you to that place where... We're um, calling the church into that place. Uh, Today, uh, I invite you to go in your Bibles to John chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, glad to have you with us this morning. Hope that you are able to feel at home and welcome. John chapter 4, we're going to be reading it in just a moment. When I was growing up on the farm, there was one place on the farm that was forbidden. One place on the farm, my parents put the fear into all of us kids, particularly me. Uh, and it was the family well. My, grand, my great-grandpa had dug the well. And it was in the middle of our property between our buildings. And I had fear put into me, never lift the lid to the well. <laughs> You know, I could pretty well go almost anywhere on the farm. We, we had these silos that went away up into the sky. We had multiple silos on the farm. They didn't care if I climbed the silos and fell off. But they didn't want me to go in the well. You know, that was always fun. That's strange. Don't look in the well. So the well had a five-by-five uh, boarded-up system on top of the well. It sat about a foot above the ground. It was a dug well. And I was not to look in it. And I know that they did this on purpose because I was an adventuresome little guy. And they were trying to keep this adventuresome little guy from falling in the well. I know that. I get that now. But at the time, it was like, well, i got to find out what's there. So I remember them being away. And when I had my friends over and we'd, because it was a heavy lid, they made sure it was heavy so this little guy couldn't get it off. But my friends, we could all get it off. So we'd reef on the one end, get that thing lifted. And then we'd all peer over the well and look down. We couldn't see the bottom. And we'd look down into that abyss. Oh, it was so exciting. I can remember this moment. So exciting. Not only disobeying mom and dad. I'm glad there's not really any little kids here. Not just disobeying mom and dad was exciting. But then we'd nudge each other. It's like, if you fall down, you'll never, there's no end to it. You'll keep falling forever. Because you couldn't see the bottom, right? And we had all these horrible things going on. I'm sure I was the one who initiated a lot of it. And we just like, oh. And we'd kind of talk, well, and the other ones, you know, I'm not going to fall down the well. And we talked about this well, and it was a well dug by, my, again, my great-grandpa. And it reminds me of when you search in Old Testament and New Testament, there's these ancient wells. These ancient wells. And actually the scripture today I want to just highlight here in John chapter 4. If you have it there in your Bibles, I invite you to read it. John chapter 4, and it's in verse... 13 and 14 again encourage you to bring your Bibles John chapter 4 verse 13 it says Jesus says everyone who drinks this water he's pointing at one of those wells everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever that means not everyone will whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst indeed The water I give them, who? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the everlasting Lord. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never, didn't say sometimes, didn't say occasionally, will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them, note this, as you receive it, will become in them a spring Now, a well just sits down there. Springs are different. It will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Father, bless your word this morning, I pray. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see in your precious name. Amen. Scripture talks about wells multiple times. Jacob's well is the well in John 4. It's called Jacob's well. It was... It was actually dug back at the time Jacob in the Old Testament had dug this well. Jesus was having a conversation with the Samaritan woman. If you went to chapter 5, there was another well. It's called the well at the pool of Bethsaida. The, the well of that one was an angel mythology. Angel came and stirred up the waters. And if you got in there while the angel was stirring it up, you would be made whole. If you go into the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 33, there was a well called the pool of Gion. It was a stream that flowed from that well to the kindred valley would wash away the blood of the daily sacrifices at the temple mount. If you'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 21, there's a well and the well is the well found in Beersheba, the desert, and in there Hagar and Ishmael, the story of Isaac and Abraham and then they turned away Hagar and Ishmael, the other son. And this well spoke of the deliverance from death. Wells. Nationally speaking, wells bring both blessing and burden. Blessings to have a well. Uh, I know on on a farm, if you can't find water, that's a problem, especially if you have livestock. We were blessed by my great-grandpa. He found a, a tributary underground, was able to tap into it, Uh, We were able to provide from that one well. Uh, A lot of cattle could drink from it. They do drink dairy cattle, drink a lot because it produces the milk, help produce the milk. And so a lot of water is consumed. It was a fresh supply for the farm, never, ever ran dry. We were blessed. And likewise, in so many areas around the world, villages, communities grow around a good well. Sometimes hard to find a good well. Wells became a source of blessing, but they were also a source of burden because wells could be poisoned. Wells could be stagnant and, and turn bad, bitter waters coming from the well. Bell, wells were fought over. Wars have been fought over wells. And so the protection and the need to protect a well, and even battles you see, even biblically in the Old Testament times, when the enemy would come in, and if they were uprooted again, before they left, they would throw debris and contaminate the well. So when you took the land, you couldn't enjoy the fresh water. They became a burden, they became both. I remember my parents talking away back in the day they were young. The well didn't look like I knew it. Of course, it was just a, it was down that hole, I remember. But it used to have a pump on the top of the well. I never ever, the pump was long gone before I was there. And they talked about in the winter days that they would go to the well in those cold, snowy, icy, windy winter days to get water. And you had the pump. Now, some of you may remember a pump on a well. I don't. But they tell me the stories about going out, and in those cold winter days, they dreaded going and getting more water, not just going out to the well where it was cold, but often it was frozen. You had to prime the pump, and it was frozen. The water was frozen. It took work and effort to get that well working again and to bring the water back up. Today, you and I, we have the blessing. We just go and we turn on our taps, and we get water. This text, John chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks this water, the water of this world, will thirst again. But whoever drinks what Christ gives you will never thirst. Indeed, water, the water he gives you, will become a spring of water welling up within you. In other words, as he moves inside, as he dwells in his sons and daughters... If you're here this morning and you've not invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior, then invite Him, the Living Water, to be your source. This world we will continue to go. You and I will continue to toil for work and to labor. We will strive to be one day retire and to have maybe a nest egg and and you know how however, however you see those years, but you know it will not satisfy because we were made to have only the Living Water satisfy us. We were created that way. And he says, as you come to the living water, he will grant you satisfaction, not just for today. It doesn't nullify today. It doesn't, you know, dull my senses to get through one more day. It doesn't get me to sleep at night. It will help me tomorrow, this week, this month. It will keep going. It doesn't run out because it's not out there somewhere. It's because he lives inside. And it will well up with living water. He will stir up from within living water. I love how he says this. He says, indeed, the water I give him, not literal water, it's the life. You know, our bodies are made up. I just looked this up, I Googled, what percentage of our bodies are water? And it said 60%. So if Google's correct, 60% of our bodies are water. The water God gives, though, becomes in you, becomes as you receive, becomes in you a spring. It just keeps coming. You don't, have to, you don't have to keep reaching down. It's there of water welling up to eternal life. Oh, this is a different kind of well. This is a well that doesn't diminish or run dry. This is a kind of well and water that flows deeply. This water satisfies me totally. This taste is constantly refreshing. It revives not only my stomach, it revives my mind. It revives my heart. It gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, hope to the discouraged, strength to the weary, warmth to those of us who are chilled. This water never stops, cannot be stolen, cannot be poisoned, cannot be tainted. It can't be embittered. It is the ultimate and true source of life. The water that God gives, true source of life. And Jesus says, the water I give will become in you a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Praise God, let it be. But what happens to this water? How does it get off? How do we become tainted? How do we get off of those things? Where no longer, because we say, yes, that sounds good, but in real life it's not happening. And the word comes to my mind, adrift. Everybody say, adrift. Adrift. So I just, for lack of better, I just titled my message today, Adrift. Not that we want to go adrift, but it's the reality of the, re- the adrift. Lori and I, we've enjoyed vacationing down when we would go down to Florida. We were on the Atlantic side, and we noticed over a number of years when we would go back along the coastline, we were right on the coastline, that e- how erosion would take a little bit of the shore Every year. Just a little bit at a time. But if you go down enough years, the first year you don't notice. The second year you don't notice. The third time you don't But after a while you're going, shoot, wasn't that a little bit further out? You know, you, can, you went down the steps and you had more steps. And now you come down the steps and the steps don't get all the way down when we make it down to the water. And it's like the banks are getting pushed back. And it's called erosion. Over time, the water's hitting against the shoreline, pulls chunks of the shoreline off. And they make reference Eroding the banks drops into the ocean. Having traveled over a number of years, we begin to measure and we can see erosion over time. Now, you and I, we don't live in a long spectrum of time, but even in those who are a few decades old, you can look back and see erosion taking place, not just in this world, but in often the church. Erosion. It's true. When it comes to the church, not just as a nation, we as a church can subtly enter into a long drift, which is brings staggering results. Uh, I remember when I first, Lori and I first bought our our Volkswagen Jetta. All those Volkswagen people say, "Here, say Amen." I think there's two or three. That's okay. They're they're not they're not the luxury car necessarily. Um, we bought our our Volkswagen, it's the only second new vehicle we bought. The first one was twelve thousand dollars. This one cost twice as much. Might be the last new one, but here's the point. We bought it. I remember when we bought it six years ago. You could drive it, you could take your hands off the wheel. I didn't do that often, but you you could take your hands off, and it stayed steady. It's just so cool. Just it was just I didn't have vehicles like that before. And just like, whoa, just it was it was straight. You know, it's just so tuned to the road. But after a few years, I take my hands off. It's no longer steady like that anymore. Uh, The roads knock some things out after a while. The bumps and bruises and twists and turns changes the steering in the vehicle. And it no longer holds that steadiness as it used to. You know, this morning, loved ones, we... We cannot for one moment take our hands off the wheel or our eyes off the road. We can't do it. If we do, it's a matter of time. Drift, we will drift to the ditch. There is a necessity to be vigilant in what we do. I mean extremely vigilant. Extremely vigilant. Only with our hands on God's word, our eyes on the Lord Jesus, can you restrain from those drifting. You keep it back. So I have to hold the steering wheel tighter. Than I did a few years ago. Because if I, if I do what I did then. It tends to drift off. Now I have, to, I have to fight it more often. And we need to do that in life. There's things that once might have come easy. But now you've got to work harder at it. You've got to be diligent in it. You've got to stay at it. You've got to fight against the drifts that take place. And I want to use an illustration. It's the story I'm sharing this morning. It's the church in a city called Ephesus. The Bible you have a book called Ephesians. And there was a city called Ephesus. Lori and I were privileged a number of years ago. We visited the city of Ephesus, and it's a very large city. The city of Ephesus is a city of illustration when it comes to being adrift. Ephesus was a city that when God spoke of his plans for them, they were good plans. I already alluded to Ephesus earlier. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and I put these up on PowerPoint, just a whole bunch of points regarding Ephesus. In Ephesians 1, verse 3, God had plans to bless them in the heavenly realms. In verse 3, he wanted to bless them with every spiritual blessing. Down in verse 7, he says he's lavishing on them the richness of God's grace. In verse 8, giving them all wisdom, all understanding. Verse 9, wanting to show them the mystery of His divine will. In verse 18, they were given an enlightened heart. They could receive incomparably great power to withstand the enemy. This is all good. I like this. Verse 19, they were granted resurrection faith. That's faith to take what's dead to come back to life. Praise God. Chapter 3, verse 12, They could approach God at any time with freedom and confidence. Verse 17, they were rooted in God's love, rooted into his love. Verse 18, able to grasp the enormity of the living God. I find it's almost like jello sometimes. But they could grasp the enormity of the living God. Verse 19, they truly knew how much God loved them. And they knew what it was to be filled with the fullness of God. Well, how did all this begin? Well, you go back with me, would you? In your Bibles, there, would you go back to Acts chapter nineteen? I want to show you the beginning of the story. I want to take you to the end of the story because this is a story about erosion. It's their story and it's your story. It's our story. So, Acts chapter 19 this is where it began. The Apostle Paul on a second missionary journey. We pick it up in verse eight. If you have it there, just follow with me. Acts 19, verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This is to be expected. The early church was called the way in the early days. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, just to bring you to this place, here he is in the city of Ephesus. He's sharing the word, but he got some pushback to be expected. He got some pushback. You know, when you begin to oppose the works of this world, the world system around us, you will get pushback. The world is not sympathetic to the cause of Jesus. Chances are, if you came to Christ later in life, you weren't either. You weren't sympathetic to the cause of Jesus either. So the world's like that. We don't know him. We are about us. We are about our profit and loss. It's about us. And so when they began to talk of Jehovah God, began to talk of Eshua, the Messiah, the living Lord, who came and was present and lived among them, and who died and gave his life for them. When he began to talk that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the everlasting life. This was strange to them. This rubbed them the wrong way, and there was pushback to be expected. To be expected, this happened, and so Paul got shut out of this one area. He simply swung over to a school. The school was the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, I, I don't know. Typically, schools are named after someone. And the word Tyrannus, I looked it up, it means tyrant. Whoever started the school, you imagine the parents calling him Tyrannus. It means you were a little tyrant. And so they just put his name, little tyrant. I, just, I amused, I, I, it's not really the point of my message. I'm just curious why they called the school Tyrannus. Because it comes from the word tyrant. So he must have been quite the guy who started the school. It's not unlike many churches today. Many works of God start in schools. It's not unlike when you start a work, you just rent out a school and people get together and you begin to teach the word of God in a school or a storefront or in some place that you rent for a period of time. This church was no exception in the early days, 30 some years ago. It was started with very humble beginnings and and then out of that it grew and then a, a place was built. This was the early days of the church of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. So Paul, they met in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and they began to see some things happen, down verse 10. This went on for two years. Now, Paul's a missionary. To get him to stay anywhere for two years is quite something. So Paul stayed there two years because it was working. It was happening. There was a group of people who were grabbing this. And so all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I want you to note the part, The Bible doesn't exaggerate. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, didn't say just in the city of Ephesus, this spread, heard the word of the Lord. This church did not start with slick marketing schemes. Paul simply taught the word of God. He opened up the sacred scriptures, and he began to teach from the prophets, and from history, and the laws, and he began to teach what the early apostles, the early disciples, had experienced and witnessed and spoke and quoted in the early gospels. He taught that in the church, and it says that throughout the entire province, people heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11, God did extreme, extraordinary miracles through Paul. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick And their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Praise God. Praise God. That was was a move of God. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. If you continue on down, I mean, you're just seeing some growth here. You continue down verse 17. They were all seized with, I'm going to say, the fear of the Lord. It's a good fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Wow, he came a long way in Two to three years. Verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Note this, they weren't just hearing it, they were responding to it. They confessed their evil deeds. Verse 19, it says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They had a big old bonfire in the middle of the town of Ephesus. They burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. I forget the number, but that was into, I've understood it's into, if I'm not mistaken, into the hundreds of thousands, perhaps even the millions of dollars. Like there was some serious getting rid of junk from their lives. So this 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 is revival. This is where God touches the heart that moves you to action, That when you go home, you say, this is in the way, this is in the way, this isn't of God, this isn't of God. And you say, God, I'm not going to have that anymore. I'm not tolerating those things anymore. I wonder what we have in our closed doors that then would have been thrown on that fire. Hmm. What are we tolerating that would have gone on that fire had we been in that moment? Because not only were they stirred, this is... Didn't happen in one or two months. It happened over two to three years. They were stirred in their heart. They went home and they said, you know, God is doing something. He's convicting me. I just, this isn't of him. And they began to bring it. And they got rid of things that were not of the Lord. They got rid of in their life. Because they just, what would Jesus do? If he were here, would he partake of this? Would he sit with me on this? Would he join me in this activity? And if he couldn't, would he join with me? With the substance I'm taking. With the things I'm drinking. With the things I'm doing. And if he won't, then I need to throw it down on this altar. Because this is Corrupting me because I've made a decision to serve Him, Him alone, and this is what was happening. Really cool, really cool. God was doing some good work in that city of Ephesus in the time of Paul. So they burned them. They calculated the risk. They calculated the value of the scrolls. that came to fifty thousand drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Oh would have enjoyed being there i think it probably would have changed some things in my life as well but then the attacks erosion erosion is there it's inevitable in that time that they were doing this the church began to have some drift began to slowly move off course it grew it got bigger more people came in and things began to happen in their midst it happens You know, Satan hates it when the word of God is declared, when the word of God is believed, and the word of God is lived out. Satan hates it. It's always when believers are in close harmony with one another, when the body of Christ is being taught, when Jesus is building his church, that there is an erosion begins to take place in our midst. The attack. Pick it up in verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. Let me just pause there. In other words, this was a money-making business. And I'm just going to say, it was a bit of an underhanded business. They were creating gods and saying, these gods will help you. So they were building these and saying, worship this, and you'll get help. By the way, here's how much it costs. And they were making some good money on it. Making some good money. Don't think money doesn't control society. Verse 25. He called together. This is the Demetrius dude. He called together along with the workmen in related trades. And he says, men, you know we've received a good income from this business. In other words, we got got something going here, guys. Verse 26. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus, and in in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. (gasps) Now just think about that for a second. Okay, let me use an illustration. What have I got up here to use? I haven't got anything up here to use. Okay. Okay. If I made this and told you to worship it, would you not give me a hard second look? That's silly. If I made it and said, this is now a God, then who am I if I made it? Now, we would just, okay, so why would I worship if, if I made it? It's only as good as the maker. And while I'm certainly not in, I'm not perfect, I'm certainly not to be worshiped, and if that came from me, come on now, just Think about it. So they made these gods, wanted people to worship it. And we come to this part right here where he says, uh, he says that man made gods are no gods at all. Uh-huh. I still don't see the problem here. But you see, if it's about money, it's about profit. Verse 27. There is a danger, he continues, there is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about the temple. The temple of the Greek goddess Artemis stood in Ephesus. This temple was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. You see a picture? It's one of the seven great wonders. Kind of like coming to Niagara Falls, Canada. It's one of the seven great wonders of the world. So this temple, people came from all over to see the temple. They came to look at it. They came to worship there. They came to just experience it. They came all over to see this, and money changed hands. It was extreme. The outflow, the subsidiaries of the temple made some good money. And Paul was stirring up this whole thing. Paul was speaking into this, and when he was coming and sharing that there is one God, and it's not that it's not the god made of human hands. When he was sharing that, that stirred up people. People were going, "Well, maybe I shouldn't come there. Maybe I shouldn't worship. Maybe I shouldn't buy spend all that money on that. Maybe I shouldn't follow through all these rituals because maybe that's really not god." And Paul was stirring that up because great conviction had come upon the city. And so these money makers wanted Paul out. Get rid of this guy. He is the center of the trouble. And so he had to leave. Leave or die. He knew his mission wasn't up yet. So he stepped out because he knew he could turn it over to someone. So Paul stepped out. He leaves Ephesus. This is after just over two years. He makes his way through Macedonia and Greece. He evangelizes. He ministers. Again, he's a missionary. He builds up churches, the ones he already had started. He wants to go to Jerusalem because the Feast of Pentecost is taking place in Jerusalem. But he can't go back in Ephesus. So he slips just around Ephesus. You read of it in his Journeys. So Paul just goes to the outskirts, and he calls the elders, because he's left the church to the elders. He calls the elders, and he said, would you meet me? I can't get into the city, because I'll get stoned, I'll get killed. So would you meet me? I'm out here. And so the elders of the church, the ones he turned it over to, came and they met him outside the city. We read of this in Acts chapter 20, 1 to 7. The elders meet him on the Aragon coast in Miletus. And as they come together, it must have been quite a reunion, And Paul issues this warning. Let's read it now. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul issues this warning. Keep watch. That's how we start. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Verse 29. I know that after I leave. He's prophesying. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. And will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. And from your own number, among you, people that you trust. From your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 31. So, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you. Night and day With tears. Did you know the first two words there? Keep watch. Keep watch. Looked it up. Means be vigilant. Be on guard. Watch out. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Watch out. You see, Paul was aware of the drift. He was aware of what erosion does. Paul predicted the painful, perverse things where he's, Basically says, erosion will come from within. You know, we look out, but beware of what comes from within. Erosion will come from within, he says. And so Paul, with a tender goodbye, he boards a ship. He sails off into the horizon, and there was a tearful goodbye. As far as we know, Paul never comes back. He wants to. He wants to visit them Again far as we know he doesn't see the city of Ephesus again so what happens to Ephesus what happens is this fragile child that got started that was doing such good things that that people in the entire province had heard the word of the Lord people were coming and they were burning the stuff of their old life because they got set on fire by God what was happening in their lives as he warned them keep watch So as far as we know, he didn't come back. But we know there were some other things. We know that when Paul was in Rome, he sent a letter back to Ephesus. And that's the book of Ephesians. Now you understand where Ephesians came from. The book of Ephesians is Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. He sends a letter back. So when you read Ephesians, we read it earlier, chapter 1, chapter 3. It's the letter Paul sent back to the church. And he sends a letter back. And he wrote in Timothy Because what he did is not only had elders in Ephesus, but he had his apprentice, Timothy. And he put Timothy as pastor for a period of time in Ephesus. And so he writes Timothy. We read that one in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So I invite you to go there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to show you something he writes to Timothy about Ephesus. Timothy 1 verse 3. He says to Timothy, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Paul's warning. He's continued. Keep watch. There's people there. They're trying to corrupt it. There's, there's things getting in there that are not of the faith. You've got to protect it. You've got to guard it. You've got to stand up against it. You can't just put up with it. Timothy, you've got to stand against those things. Don't tolerate it. Because these things are adrift. These things erode you. These things will pull things out of you. You don't see it at first. But as time goes on, you begin to lose faith. You begin to lose hope. You begin to lose the vision that God has for you. And things in your life go dry. And your spirituality falls out. Beware, he says, of the drift. Beware of the drift. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. He continues. He says... Don't let anyone, Timothy, look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Wow, we can just spend time in all of those. In your speech, in your life, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Verse 13. Until I come. He never did come back as far as we know. Until I come, he said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. In other words, don't forsake the Scripture. Don't forsake it. To preaching, to the teaching. You know, they did that back in Acts every single day. Every single day. Well, that's a lot. Laurie was a while ago talking, you need to be part of a life group. You know, once a week, once a month, whatever time you've got framed up, it's not enough. Don't forsake it. Don't neglect. Devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture publicly, to preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15. Be diligent, Timothy, in these matters. Be diligent. Be diligent. Remember he had said earlier, keep watch. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. God wants us to progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Can I just pause here for a second? Some people say doctrine is not important. Doctrine is very important. Now there's some there's things that are not doctrine. There's practices that become unique and you have to work through that, how you live out some things. But doctrine is very important. You know, I have come, one of the hardest parts is when you're part of a church and leading and pastoring is to watch people that you love and you nurture, you, you're part of your family, leave, you know, for maybe reasons that you don't understand. And it happens. It happens every year. It happens here. Every year. People who don't like... Doctrine. Well, change that. Well, that happens to be doctrine. It's not doctrine made up by fellowship. It's doctrine based on God's Word. And I can't back away from that. Society would have us to water it down, water it down, water it down. Just accept, 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 and have no principles. And yet you can. not And so there's those who leave. And this is the tension that it creates. And they had it right there. He called them. He said, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere, stay with it, because if you do, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Stop the erosion, Paul says. Watch out for the drift. And with that last letter, we don't hear anything more for 30 years about the city of Ephesus. That's the last in 1 Timothy chapter 4, biblically, that we have until until much time goes by. Decades, actually. We don't know how it went for Timothy. We're not told. We're unsure of the church's condition long-term. We're not told. Our great hope is that they took these words to heart. But we can actually fast forward 30 years. There's one more instance to Ephesus. You find it in Revelation chapter 2. invite you to go there. Ephesus is once more talked about. Revelation chapter 2. This is 30 years after 1 Timothy 4. 30 years later. The Lord Jesus gives a message to the apostle John. All the other apostles, as presumed at that time, have been martyred. They've been killed. John is the last one living. He was the youngest of the apostles. He is living. He's in exile. And God gives him a word. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. It says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. There it is. There's our city. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, the Lord Jesus himself. Now we're going to see how Ephesus is doing. Verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, for God's name, for the name of Christ, and have not grown weary. That's a pretty good report. That's not bad. I mean, it's a great report. But, verse four, he says, But, I never like the word but, but I have this against you. You forsook, you have forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your first love. It's called erosion. You've drifted. It's just subtle. A little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit. You've just life and stuff and challenges and things get in. And little by little, he says, You've you've kept doctrine, you've persevered, you pushed out some of those people who were there, and you've worked hard to maintain. But he says, But I'm I've noticed something here. You've lost that first love. That first love is so important. It's kind of that first love when you're married. You know, you made every evening an evening for romance. Every song was a love song. The drive, when you took in those early days, you held the person's hand when you drove. You could hardly wait to do that. Every part of your life was a joy, a journey of intimacy, of fun, of exploration, of passion. But as the years begin to stack up, something happens to first love in relationships. Your life begins to focus on your career. Your life focuses on your kids. You gaze, Your gaze turns another direction. You got deadlines you have to meet. You got payments you have to pay. There's never ending stuff. You maybe even get involved in church work and you get busy in even the work of the church and all manners of busyness and life and the results is you're no longer vulnerable like you were. No longer do you look at each other the way you did. No longer is your conversation like it was. The enthusiasm is different now. And before you know it, an intimate relationship is replaced with mere obligations. You have to because you're married. Now it's just an obligation. What happened? Well, you left your first love. You don't have to, your affections have cooled. It wasn't on purpose. It just, well, it just happens. And there's no clearer picture of erosion. He says, I have this against you. You've lost your love. You've lost your love. So what had eroded in the Ephesian church? Well, their doctrine hadn't eroded. Not even their deeds had eroded. Their devotion to Jesus had eroded they had remained on guard against heresy they remained on guard against passivity but they neglected the love relationship you know that was assumed it was assumed that they loved the lord the second generation of ephesian church Didn't carry out the passion of the first generation. The first generation fought through with passion. The second generation took it for granted. The first generation, they memorized the things Paul gave them to memorize. The second generation, well, you know, they had their apps. They didn't have to memorize it. They didn't have to look at it. They didn't have to make it a part of their everyday discipline so that they could grow in it. And then the third generation came along, and and they didn't have the same passion. They took for granted the blessings that came down from the generation before. And after one or two generations, it just got old. What's that? First love. You've lost your first love. And in so doing, you've eroded. And in so doing, things are lost forever. In so doing, come back, he says. Come back to your first love. It leads to a couple of important questions this morning. What's to keep that same erosion erosion from happening to you? What's to keep that same erosion from happening to Cornerstone Church? How can I fight that kind of erosion in my life? You know, churches don't erode. People erode. I'm going to say that again. Churches don't erode. People erode. Churches stem the tide of erosion one person at a time. You can't blame someone else for the erosion. It's me. It's you. Right? you. It's personal. C.S. Lewis once said, The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. Let me do that again. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. In other words, we need to smell our own stink. (laughs) We need to smell our own stink instead of blaming someone else. And like the Christians in Ephesus, here's the call. I close with this Have you lost your first love? Have you lost the delight of walking with Jesus? You might say, I've never had it. Well, you can. Maybe you forget what it was. Lori and I, we just celebrated a couple of days ago our 39th anniversary. Yes. That's a clap for her. That's a clap for her. So we were together, and we, um, I asked the question. I said, um, over 39 years, when you think back, what are areas that stand out in your mind that are significant to our relationship? So we had a discussion around that. I like to push the envelope sometimes. and So while we were eating our salads, we, uh, we began to talk about that. She began to talk about some trips we've made, how they were defining in our relationship. She talked about some anniversaries we had in the past and how they were defining in the relationship. We talked about events. Some of the things I was making comment was, I think was hugely defining, was when our kids started coming. And we began to, how our relationship had to adjust to that in our home. Uh, One of the biggest ones to me was that of all the people on planet Earth that were female, (laughs) and I guess potentially could have married, which I would never have known them, I'm so glad God gave me her because, well, first of all, she's put up with me. But that's a whole other story. But the other part is somebody who carries, I don't know of anyone on this earth who has such spiritual passion as my wife. She has a spiritual passion I've not seen in anyone. And that, that passion, you know, keeps me between the lines in so many ways. It just, it's, it's, it compels me in faith. Uh, and I realized how God brought us together for that. And we, we talked, we talked about what was it. It wasn't one thing. We, we went on. There was a number. We just began to talk about those 39 years, moments in time as we pulled them out. We talked about them, pulled them out, we talked about them, pulled them out and talked about them. We defined them. By doing that, we defined them with each other. I know she later commented, she said, I didn't realize some of those things. Thanks for sharing them. And likewise myself, I didn't realize the way you thought that way. Thanks for sharing that. But there's something about that relationship so easily can just take each other for granted. And the Lord says, don't. I have this against you. You've lost the first love. Come back. Come back to your first love. And the invitation today, when we call a sacred fast, when we call to get back, there's been an erosion, there's been a drifting, there's been a constant something pushing away. And you can compare yourself to things around you and say, well, I'm better than them. Jesus doesn't get into that very well. You ever notice that, the story of John and Peter and Jesus? And Peter's going, well, what about him? And Jesus says, get off that. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm comparing myself to you. And so quit quit comparing yourself to your husband, your wife, somebody you know, another church. Compare yourself to what God wants to do in your life. That's where you have to compare yourself. Has there been erosion? Has there been a drifting? And here's the call. God, I make a decision. It starts with a decision. And then it lives with the lifestyle. God, I make a decision today. God, I come back. I will put the disciplines in my life to come back to first love to you. And, you know, sometimes we talk about the sacrifice of worship and praise. I talked of this last night when we gathered together. That a sacrifice of praise and worship, it's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost you anything. We were telling the worship team that, you know, for a long, long, long time, that just our discipline has been on Saturday night that we just kind of clear off most of our schedules. Unless, of course, somebody's getting married. But we clear off our schedules so that we can bring ourselves just openly before God. We prepare ourselves before Sunday morning. We don't allow ourselves certain things because we don't want to drift. We don't want the erosion to work away itself in our heart. So we discipline ourselves in order to get ready when we meet in the house of the Lord so that when we worship, we haven't just come in here and going, shoot, I've been dry all week. No, the night before, we were splashing in the wells of the Lord. So when it comes to worship, it's really quick for us to clap our hands because we were clapping our hands the night before. It's really quick for us to lift our hands because I was lifting my hands the night before. I didn't have to work it up. It was there because the springs of life were already flowing. Not boasting, I'm just saying. But there's something about the drift of life that would get you off. And if you're there, beloved, this this morning, you don't have to be. I just encourage you. I've been reading a book. I just finished it. It's called Revolution. Revolution. Have a revolution for Jesus. Go against the tide of the stream of this world. Even against the tide of the stream of some people who call themselves in the church. And we stand up against that and say, I'm not just going to flow the normal way. I'm going to seek the Lord. I want first love again. I want to feel it again, God. I want when, when worship starts that I don't have to try to mine something. I want it already there flowing as springs of living water. It's called first love. It's called first love. And I want to pray for you. But before I do, if you're here this morning and you have not embraced him who is Savior, him who is Lord and has made the way that you might come to that well of living water, if you don't know him, if you've not experienced him, then don't walk out these doors without doing that. Embrace him as your Lord. Embrace him as your Savior. Embrace him as the living water. And I invite you to do that. So in a moment, we're going to pray. And I want you, just where you are, I want you to pray that prayer. And then make sure you tell somebody. You need to witness about that. You need to say, you need to go up to Pastor Daniel or go up to BJ who was talking earlier and you need to, or go up to myself or my wife or somebody, go up to them and say, you know, I made that prayer for the first time. I made a prayer that I want to follow Jesus and I invite him into my heart and my life to serve him and to live for him for the rest of my life. Let somebody know that. Don't keep that private. If you do guarantee the enemy's going to try to steal it before you get out of our parking lot. You need to tell somebody so you're accountable, and you need to give witness to that, and you need to get baptized in water and all kinds of great things. But the second part is for many here today, you just need to come back to that first love, and you need to find him who your soul has lost. Come back to that first love.